You're listening to Sunnyside Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sunnyside Up. I'm your host, Tyler Gambardella, and today I am more than super excited to talk to Tino Wilson on today's topic, Shifting Sands of Consumer Behavior. And measuring ROI as that power shifts to the consumers. Tina, that is one hell of a topic, and I'm sure we could spend more than half hour, 45 minutes diving into it. But I love having you here. Thanks, Tyler. Appreciate the opportunity to have a little chat today. Yeah, of course. So just to give the listeners your background a little bit, Tina Wilson, guys, is the global head of product outcomes at Nielsen. So she's a 25-year Nielsen vet, and Tina leads teams that are at the epicenter of media consulting, leveraging Nielsen's world-class data assets to inform clients' decisioning on reaching audiences, acquiring and distributing content, and understanding media outcomes. Tina has held progressive leadership roles at Nielsen in the United States, Canada, and Europe, and is an active member of the Marketing Advisory Board at PLNU and a steering committee member for the World Economic Forum's media, entertainment, and cultural initiatives. Tina is also a member of Paley's LA Board of Governors. Tina, I am so excited to talk to you. (laughs) Welcome to the show. That is one hell of an introduction. It's a long one. Well, you have your hands in a lot, and I think it's super interesting just to get your perspective on a lot of things. Something that we're going to talk to today is sort of, I think we wanted to speak about how the consumer and the consumer behavior has, we call it like the shifting sands, has changed from maybe the turn of the century until now. You have a really unique purview into all of that, being at your spot in Nielsen. And so I'm ready to pick your brain and see how deep we can dive in in the next half hour. Sounds good. First and foremost, tell us about yourself, your role, your backgrounds. And can we just start with like you majored in gerontology (laughs) and statistics and now you're here. So tell us how the hell does one do that? So it's not as disconnected as it may sound, but like you said, what I do today is we have teams that build software and we're helping marketers just know how well they've spent their investments to reach and influence consumers. And everybody needs to do that and they need it with more urgency and more frequency than they ever have and really ties into what's happening with the consumer changes, right? And mm-hmm. for me, the the beauty of it is I can relate to that. I can relate to being the consumer that these marketers are trying to, to reach and to influence. You mentioned just the decades of time that I've spent here at Nielsen. And I, I sat on both sides of what was our organization. So in our, mm-hmm. what was the connected side of Nielsen that we sold off last year, which was really helping manufacturers bring new products to market and figuring out innovation and what 
what the heck do consumers want and how do we make sure we get it into their hands, right? And bringing mm -hmm. that same mentality into the media space where from a content perspective and advertising perspective, everybody's just trying to connect with that consumer. And so the connection point for me with gerontology is uh, it's not as a twisted path as it may sound. That was a, an incredible program that I was part of for both my undergraduate and graduate work about demography, about statistics, mm -hmm. about social systems and what it means to you know, have all of those pieces connected to be able to have that really contextualized understanding of aging and whether it was support for caregivers or about the biological processes of aging or urban planning. So when you boil it all down, there's a lot of things that are just practical applications of that same type of curriculum and just a really interesting space when you when you just hyper-focus on the consumer and, of course, in our case, the aging consumer. So yeah, makes more sense when you say it that way. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a lot of data behind sort of the decisions and the kind of maybe even the policy that we have towards, you know, how people are aging in this country, globally. That's super interesting. And I mean, that's a, that's a topic all to in itself. But I think where it's a good place to start is, I mean, let's just take it from that turn of the century. Like it's the year 2000. Google just launched its AdWords. They have like 300 customers. Gosh, did Bush or Gore win Florida? I mean, nobody knows. Like, where is the consumer in this arena? And then let's start from there and we'll kind of take it to where they are now. And we'll talk about kind of that shifting power dynamic and also the shifting SAMs. Yeah, the one thing that's threaded as consistent, whether we're talking about that time period or even before that, is the need to stay focused on the consumer and just understanding mm -hmm. them, their motivations, their preferences, how they make decisions, where they look to make purchases or, you know, the influences that they may have. And all of those factors are the same. They're just more complicated than they used to be. And there's a lot more mm -hmm. to them than there used to be. And I would say that it was, you know, a point in time where there was still experimentation in the market about different ways of experimenting with digital and reaching people, you know, differently. And you can see how that's just been hyper-focused since that point in time. And even yeah. how we consume media and how much streaming has taken over and even non-ad supported content choices. So how you connect with a consumer and really keep up with them because they're, ability to make decisions, their choices they're making about where they buy and what they watch, all of that continues to evolve, which I think is what's so inspiring and what's so fascinating about being in this space is that mm -hmm. it continues to change and it's going to continue to change going forward. And that's, that's really yeah. at the crux of why, you know, the, the data-driven decisioning becomes so critical because you keeping up is just harder to do. Yeah. And it's so fascinating, right? Because back in like early 2000s, I mean, how much, like how complicated it really was that buyer's journey on the consumer's end, right? There was only a few different arenas where we could reach the consumer. TV was still huge. Yeah. I mean, people bought like they sort of did for the last 50 years. But then like with the shift to digital and then Facebook really comes into play in like 2006. And then you have, you know, Twitter coming involved and and then you start seeing, like you just talked about it, like this idea that consumers now have so much of their own kind of discretionary power of how they decide to interact with brands.
brands and where they decide to drive the brands. Yeah, I like to contrast the difference, right? If I put myself as the consumer and I think back to what was I like as a consumer then, and even though my preferences are probably largely similar, like how different is the process now, right? So yeah. if I look back, let's see, I was still likely going to the mall to buy clothes. I was probably picking my show right from a TV guide, probably mm-hmm. going to fitness classes at a gym and ordering food as it was described on the menu, right? No substitutions, please, or upcharge for your own preferences, which is just fascinating that contrast that to now and my name's written on my coffee cup. I can put corn on pizza and nobody questions me. I get boxes delivered to my door of my clothing subscriptions and things like that somebody has picked for me i use apps and rings to measure how i'm sleeping when i should meditate and breathe like all these these different aspects that were never part of how things happened and i even get sneak peeks into my favorite actors right i know their family lives and things about them that they post on social media because i can connect with them and it's really this i think fascinating shift of going from the consumer having to seek out what they want and finding it and then paying for it or having some value transaction for it to, you know, the reverse of that where consumers are being sought after. And now you're like pushing away choices and options coming at you versus being the one to initiate to go, you know, get that need fulfilled. Yeah. And there's this element that like a lot of consumers feel now where they're almost overwhelmed, right? Like everywhere they go now, they're Mm -hmm. interacting with, different options, like you said. And it used to be like one or two options for anything you want, right? Like you said, you go to the mall and what clothing outlets are there is what you gotta get. So I guess if I'm a brand now and you did a great job of kind of outlining like all of these different arenas where you know we could reach consumers and also there's data about these consumers that as marketers we care about, Take us through, because this is part of like your role at Nielsen. Like, take us through how you consult these marketers on figuring out where to focus in a world where there's so much data. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, a lot of it is about making the commitment to stay focused on the consumer and understand the consumer. And different than it used to be, that has to be a continuous commitment. It's not a once a year, once every two years, do we do some piece of landscape work to get a lay of the, you know, our buyers or our potential buyers and that it's constant because consumers are changing in a constant basis as well. And so that's the first piece of it. And then there's really probably what I'd say, maybe four other things that they have to really focus on. One is in staying connected to, to the consumer and what the consumer wants is matching where they make their products available offline and online relative to those preferences and staying, you know, anticipating where the consumer preference is going to be. So that's mm-hmm. one. Planning the media investment and not annoying consumers is another one, right? So reach and yeah. used to be the largest play to be able to engage with consumers, but everybody gets annoyed when they get the same ad seven times when they only needed to see it once or twice. And so mm-hmm. different media channels have different abilities to target effectively and to reach. And so being mindful of getting feedback from consumers in this process as well about things that are relevant to them. At what point do things get annoying or that there's a you know a decay in the impact of trying to reach them and, and being mindful versus putting things out, you know, just more broadly without some type of monitoring to understand it. Wait, can we pause right there? Because this 
is something because you know there's the b2b side of this and the b2c side sure. and this is something that on the b2b side is just like oh my gosh i mean people are afraid to download a form now because they're going to sdrs are going to be hounding the marketing automation is going to be hounding that i mean they're going to be hit up by all sides because they wanted an ebook that said it was educational and they just wanted to learn so i mean what are your thoughts there I'll give you my personal anecdote, which is being a consumer and it has both B2C and B2B applications, right? But at my house, the number of connected devices, if I go holiday shopping for a member of my household, they're more likely to get served up an ad on another device that we have and know, like I can't get around that. So it is like there's power of connection, there's power of data. And then there is, just as you said, the last thing I want to do is create a temporary email address or something to be able to go and make a purchase that's convenient that I want to get without it being, you know, some residual impact that comes back and spoils the surprise, you know, on on some birthday or or holiday. Well, let me ask you something. Why do you think it is that marketers still, I mean, we're still sending out thousands and thousands of emails a day and everyone's talking about getting more targeted. But why do you think it is that we just can't seem to get away from the volume approach as marketers? You know, I'm so empathetic to the plight of the marketer because their job is so much harder than it used to be. And there's so much more data. And I think that's part of it, right? The value that we can offer is tools that help synthesize and simplify. And right now there's some behaviors Mm -hmm. that don't change because by golly, they just don't know how. And there's so much information, it's overwhelming to know what are the signals to pay attention to and what are those that not. And you you do, right? If you take a broad swath across marketers, I'm not naming any names here or even any categories, but there are some who do the things that they believe that they need to do, right? To check some boxes versus yeah. knowing that it's actually valuable and knowing that it's optimized and knowing that they're getting the best return. So you have just people in different spaces of the continuum of understanding of how to work with the data and how to Mm. stay ahead of it and how to use it for both predictive and anticipatory in addition to like looking at what happened. Like if there's so much more to just getting the answer of some number or some response versus understanding Mm. the why, what happened next and what do I do about it? Parts of it and different levels of maturity and different industries for familiarity and comfort of using data and using it smartly. Yeah. And this is what you counsel marketers every day on, I'm assuming, right? It is. Yeah. It's a big part of it. So, you know, in my portfolio, it's everything from the guidance that feeds into strategic planning uh, allocation. So where to put the dollars, but who to best go after to upper funnel of the brand impact for the dollars that are spent and how well those dollars were spent all the way down mm-hmm. to, you know, single impression and what, what it drove in terms of a, a lower funnel KPI or a, a sales effort or whatever, again, mm-hmm. the category could be different for what the brand KPI, you know, is that they're looking to link that to, but it is that it's so much data coming from so many different places and players right now and trying to synthesize it and, give marketers the ability to operate with ease, with confidence, mm-hmm. with a complete view of their ecosystem. And that's that's the task because it's a complicated space <laughs> and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to it. Yeah. Is it one of the issues at play here is that there's so many, I mean, 
to your credit is their business model. There's so many walled gardens where consumers are interacting. And so how do marketers kind of make sense of all this different data that they're getting from these different walled gardens? Is that a question that kind of comes up in your line of work? It does. I mean, it's a reality of our of the change in our ecosystem, right? That we have data that once was available to marketers from a number of different places. And now just the model of the exchange of the data is different. Mm-hmm. And it's got good reason behind it. We want to make sure we're protecting consumers. It's part of the flight, you know, towards consumer ownership of their information mm-hmm. or just the protection of and the responsibility that goes with having data. But it's it's that very point of stitching things together to make sense of it. And it's a challenging job when you've got to take data sources from a variety of different places and try to make sense of it. And that's, you know, that's not going to go away. You have changes in permanent dynamics of how people shop, view, engage, and digital is going to obviously continue. Streaming is going to obviously continue. Connected devices, obviously key. So it's, mm. it's only a signal to where things are going versus it being a point in time. It's not going to get any simpler, right? The data is not going to yeah. get any simpler or less. The the opportunity is the synthesis and the simplification so people can act on it with confidence. Yeah. And I'm just thinking out loud here. I mean, there's like smart beds now. <laughs> <laughs> there's data on when you sleep that's being right. collected from you. Oh man, yeah, there's data flying everywhere. So that naturally leads our marketing brains to think of the question as the age-old question, how do we measure ROI? <laughs> so... You know, when we're thinking about this, this kind of construct, this, this change of the consumerism, we're seeing that the power is being shifted into the more of the consumer. So how do marketers measure what's actually working? And maybe we could start with how they measure back in, we call it the old days, but like even 10 years ago, how are marketers? Yeah. How are marketers measuring? And maybe let's start from there and we can take it to where they're going. Yeah. So biggest picture, right? What they're trying to make sure they've done is made the right bets, put the money in the right places. And they're getting the learning and the return from those dollars being spent. So that part hasn't changed. So I don't think what we're trying to measure has changed as much as how we need to measure it. So a couple differences, mm-hmm. right? In the old days, as you said, 10, 20 years ago, they were pretty static views, which are a lot less valuable than they are now because consumers, environment, or just all engagements with brands are more dynamic than they've been before. And there's a context that's needed to understand kind of that journey aspect versus point in time or transaction or something that's a you know one-time engagement. You need to build continuous relationships with whatever the end client's going to be. And that's just, that just matches real life, the complexity of how people make yeah. decisions and how they're looking to engage with brands. So a couple of things that we see being different now than they used to be, if you would, I think that there, well, I know that there, there's more metrics that brands want to be able to look at. And it's, it's again, going back to like corn on a pizza, it's a personal preference of what you want at that point in time. So it's okay that a, you know, a single construct of a sales ROI is not the only metric that matters to be able to evaluate how successfully you've spent, whether they're brand metrics about creating awareness or creating a followership or conversion versus sales, that there, there are more touch points on that continuum 
that are relevant. So that's been a change, more flexibility in the brand metrics, more metrics that are being captured. Because again, there's more frequency by which marketers need to prove the value of everything they're spending. So that's, that's one. And look, they want to do that among more refined audiences. So not just a standard demographic, but certain, you know, first party or third party, like segments that are of high value to them. And ultimately what they want to do is plan, activate and measure with the same granularity so that they're able to reach the audiences that they want. They're able to assess how well they've done and they're able to take that impact and convert it to the next time they, you know, look to both reach and influence. So that's definitely And just probably lastly on that is just, it's more continuous versus, you know, again, point in time. And I think that's a really important part that these are more programs now than kind of points in times that they need to be always on or on demand to match just how the ecosystem works and how, you know, people engage with within that. Yeah. Something really interesting that you said is how the customer journeys sort of reply that they're, they're not linear, like we all think they are. You know, we don't decide we want something one day. In the perfect world, we go research it and then we click on an ad and then we go and buy it. And then our day is done and we love this brand and we live happily ever after. And to oppose that with the like B2C versus B2B, in, in the B2B realm, there's buying committees doing this research. These right. deal cycles take like six months, a year, three years, depends on what you're selling. And on the B2C end, it could be a one-hour thing. It could be a one-hour customer journey. So I guess what changes when you're thinking about B2B versus B2C and the buyer's journey? Just like double-click into that for me. Yeah, so I want to contrast two things on this. So the first, what I think is fascinating is the blurring lines for B2B and B2C. I mean, just the entire direct-to-consumer movement in, in categories where the middle you know, distributor kind of layer has been taken out. So I think there's a fascinating area there that's just changed again, the dynamic. But for B2B and B2C, I think what they do have in common and where they've both evolved is being tech-enabled. And the role that technology has played to be able to facilitate transactions, right? Again, whether it's between companies or a consumer and a company, or a brand that there's the ability to serve up experiences or buying transactions in ways that haven't happened in the past that used to be more human touch and interactive and take longer that are now automated and real time Mm. and optimized again, based on data that's driving it or AI that's driving that. So it certainly changes the engagement protocols, the timeline, the feedback loops, supply chain. I mean, Every operational process has been improved or impacted by having some tech enablement that's behind it, which again, changes the speed at which markets move. It changes the competitive landscape for, you know, staying and being current and being that preferred. And I think what it's doing is giving rise again, whether it's B2B or B2C in second players or, you know, challenger brands, if you would, that have abilities to use technology to offer some superiority even over what the offering the service the product you know itself is so there's it's an interesting contrast between you know substantive operating protocols along with kind of features and benefits of of what the offering is yeah 
those are really great points. I mean, I can't even tell you how many pop-up brands there are and you interact with when you're scrolling through Instagram or Facebook that you've never heard of. And it wasn't like that just 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So it's definitely, I think technology, you're right, has enabled sort of newcomers to come in and it's not always the first mover advantage anymore. So I think with business as well, which had, you know, it's, it's an interesting contrast because it had such a relationship component to it, like who you did business with. Mm, yeah. And now that you have a technology that's supplanting some of that relationship value or who you do business with aspect of it, mm. it's, it's an interesting contrast then of who, who is the stronger competitor? What is the role of price? How does that change in terms of speed and go to market? Which is, yeah. as you say, though, back in kind of a B2C space, certainly with social and digital and influencers and so forth, there's a different role for technology. But, you know, on one side, it's accelerating and taking out human touch. And on the other side, in a B2C, yeah. it's actually accelerating and amplifying connection. Well, when you say accelerating and amplifying connection, people are always talking about how the humans are going to be replaced in this whole customer journey. So talk to me about that. Well, I think in a a data-driven perspective, right? You can operationalize things that used to be construed as only creative, that only people could do. And I think that there's opportunity to blend. So you take machines as far mm-hmm. as they can take, but you still need the added value of you know people on top of it. I mean it from the experience of, again, being a consumer and having via technology or thanks to technology, I can be an influencer. I can promote certain brands and products. I can connect myself yeah. with the values of a product that I never would have you know, thought about, cared about when we talk about that 10 or 20 years ago. So it's just a different mm-hmm. forum of, again, it's such a widespread set of benefits that come from technology, technology enablement through mm-hmm. all operations to, to the last touch point. And Tina, what technologies are marketers using right now to help them make these kinds of decisions, make sense of these kinds of decisions, these kinds of things? Yeah, I think marketing optimization software, when I talk about the synthesis of bringing a lot of data in and making sense of it, certainly an area of growth. I can say Within the remit that I have, you know, the three kind of most popular uses of, of software and technology would be against these three use cases. The first, as I said, being channel allocation. Where do I put my dollars and how do I simulate and optimize the reach and frequency so I don't tick off a consumer? And so I do reach and spend the next yeah. dollar in the best way to, you know, products that we have that are about how every media touch point has an impact back to the brand really growing in interest because people are learning, marketers are learning that, you know, not just going for the short-term in-quarter sale or conversion mm. is the only thing that matters. You have to be continuing to build the brand over time and it has both short and long-term benefits. And so that's, you know, a key piece. And certainly for us, lastly, in attribution and just the at an impression level of every tactic digitally that's executed, given just how important that is for offline and online in connecting it to that consumer journey because you you need to be at every touch point and it is just yeah. a more complex set of actions decisions influences that a consumer you know has yeah something you said there reminded me of that old saying that creative is king <laughs> brand is king too like is brand still king or is the question i have is does brands 
and brand recognition matter when I can go on Instagram, see a brand I've never heard of before, but it looks like they have great clothes, like you said, and I could sign up for a free trial of their subscription, so I'll go and do it. It's such an interesting question. So the answer is going to be yes. They still have to continue, even brands with like the highest levels of awareness. And Mm -hmm. the reason is consumers have an expectation that you want to continue to engage with them. So you pull your foot off the pedal of placing those efforts and keeping those connections fresh and challenger brands or other brands have an opportunity to swoop in because they know that keeping that connection constant and continuous is is important. And even if you look at how People are responding not just to what the functional need of something they've bought satisfies, but the purpose of the company that they choose to engage with, right? You're now satisfying needs at different levels. And we didn't really think of it that before. There's expectations of social responsibility and brand objectives and the personality or the values of a company that matters. And it's going to continue to matter no different than representation of you know, who you see yourself when you're, when you're looking at content or ads or, or that. So creative, certainly a key aspect of it. And you can look at a number of different stats that are out there ranging from it matters, you know, 30% to 70%. My position is, you know what, it matters differently depending on what your brand objective is. And that brand objective has to be the entire funnel, not just the, what am I going to close right now? And what's the thing I need? Because that's been where folks I think have left money on the table, trying to do a one size fits all of spending and trying to answer every question with one tool that's not designed to do so, or doing that tooling kind of one time as opposed to continuous. So you got me excited on on that one. There's a lot to unpack in, in uh, brand values and brand recognition and brand reputation that is said. Uh, it makes this journey prospect just so, so fascinating. Like you got to stay in tune to so many yeah. different aspects you didn't have to before. Yeah. I'm just so fascinated to like see where this all goes because I mean, it, it just, and you said it before, I empathize so much with the plight of the marketer. There's just so much. I mean, we just unpacked the tip of the iceberg for all of these different subjects today. Tell us a little bit, I guess I'm just curious, like Nielsen and the work they're doing and their software and their world-class data. I'm assuming you guys are ahead of all of this and like small, medium, large companies. This is such a large, there's a lot going on here for every company. So does Nielsen software make sense of a lot of these questions? So just give us kind of the the quick how Nielsen's technology helps here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the value for what Nielsen offers advertisers, agencies, and even publishers is the fact that we have both measurement and these outcome measurement components under the same umbrella, right? So being able to connect not just the reach, the size of an audience and the composition of it, but then that what happened next answer of what happened when there was exposure to the advertising in that content. And did it, did it drive a subscription? Did it drive a test drive? Did it drive a purchase? Did it, what did it elicit as a response to and having those worlds connected is of absolute value to the industry because that's what they want to understand, right? Not just who did I reach, but the so what, what happened next that goes along with it. Right. And look, ultimately our our goal is that these are software products that are accessible to 
marketers of all sizes, all categories, and all countries. We have one of the largest footprints in, in my practice area for these products globally. And we help brands, you know, in multiple markets around the world where consumers differ, right, in their motivations and and so forth. So there's a lot of value in in extracting that and having the global footprint, the access to the media data, the access to that Grace Note metadata about the content so you can put pieces together to really understand what optimizes. And ultimately, ultimately, our goal is to have buyers and sellers be able to have common language to communicate and transact on about the value of content, the placement of advertising within that content, and the actions that happen from consumers. And ultimately, the better job marketers do, the more natural this all feels to us consumers and less, you know, spammy or even creepy, this could all feel, right? So the more data we have, the more we can make sense of these buyer's journeys for every single brand. Ultimately, you're doing a lot of good because you're linking up people, what they need and want with the best brand for that. I think it's all fascinating. Tina, I I am recognizing we just, I think, crushed like 45 minutes. So (laughs) that was pretty easy. I think there's a ton more we could unpack here, but I just want to give our audience sort of a personal purview into you. You told us our backgrounds. What are like some books you're reading, some things you're really passionate about? Tell us like the fun fact or what have you, uh, Tina Wilson, and then tell our listeners how they could potentially connect with you if they're interested. Yeah, thank you. Anyone can connect with me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest place to find me under Tina Levins Wilson. So that's where you'll find me. I am thoroughly enjoying a book right now by David Cote, Winning Now, Winning Later. It was just released in 2020, I think the summer of 2020. And he was with Honeywell. And it's just such a good set of reminders around short-term and long-term goals and being from a business perspective and being able to satisfy both of them. And and I think it's what's useful for me as a business leader, but I think useful for any of my clients as well, because it is just a good reminder that you don't starve the long-term growth opportunities by hyper-focusing on meeting the quarter, meeting the immediate goals. And look, through COVID, that's what a lot of folks had to do for survival mode, but good reminder to pull back out and balance those two things. So I would say that. And then on the, I would say I'm an aspiring podcaster, as you and I have chatted about, (laughs) outdoors and fitness. So golfer and, you know, just really into community service and mentoring. So there's a lot a lot of ways yeah. to connect with me if there's uh, opportunities to take this rich set of experiences I've been lucky enough to have at Nielsen and in 30 plus years of, of media and analytics and, and happy to share those with others as well. Yeah, uh, Tina, this has been awesome. Such a pleasure. And everybody look out for Tina Wilson's podcast coming soon. I am totally encouraging her to do it. She has a wealth of information that we just scratched the surface on. All right, everybody, that's this episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Tyler Gambardella with Tina Wilson. We will see you again soon. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV. 